0: Hello everyone and welcome back to the Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren and today we're going to be talking to somebody who would be uh, familiar to many of you because we've had him on the show before and that is Austin Ruse, who works for CFAM. Just to give you a bit of background into him once again for those of you who might not remember his bio or being introduced to him for the first time. uh, Ruse spent many years in the New York Magazine world. He worked at senior levels at Fortune and Forbes, the Atlantic Monthly and Rolling Stone Uh, after his conversion. To Catholicism, he left that world and began to volunteer for various causes. And in 1997, he met a Canadian team who had raised money to open a pro life lobbying group at the UN. And that is when CFAM was born. Austin was one of the first employees. He rose to the office of president of CFAM in 2000. He is a writer and he has published four books, more than a thousand columns and essays, mostly at Crisis Magazine, where he is a contributing editor. He lectures all over the world. He has hundreds of interviews on radios, podcasts, TV, and he is one of the primary opponents of the global agenda of the sexual left at the United Nations at the international level. We've had him on before when we were talking about the impact of the Trump administration on what was going on for social conservatism at the international level. I wanted to talk to him again because there's a lot of people talking about the international bodies, what they're up to, what they're imposing on people, what did UN treaties have. to do with what took place in mexico with the legalization of abortion for example and so i wanted to have austin on to kind of explain for all of us in layman's terms what's going on at the international level how we should understand it and why we should be aware this is that conversation all right, uh, just to start off, there is a lot of discussion, uh, especially I noticed over the last couple of years, about the sexual colonialism of the left. And this has come into focus under the Biden presidency as we find out uh, that he is funding um, abortion and the LGBT agenda overseas, that he puts pressure on other countries using international documents on these issues. Uh, how would you describe the sexual colonialism of the left if you think that's a valid way to term it?
1: You know it, it, it is and it's a phrase that we've been using now for you know a couple of decades uh, It's inter- It's interesting that uh, even Pope Francis uses this kind of language and he's used this language repeatedly. So sexual colonialism is where the sexual revolutionaries uh, from the global north, seek to impose the sexual revolution on the people in the global south um and this includes the whole panoply of the sexual revolution uh you know homosexuality and and uh you know uh adultery and and uh u.n style family planning and uh pornography uh homosexuality uh, transgenderism. So, so through the documents of uh, the United Nations, and also through the programming of governments, they seek to impose the sexual revolution on every man, woman, and child in the world.
0: Now, how do they go about this? Because what's interesting about the newsletter that, like, um, I read your newsletter. I've been following your blog uh, for years, and it's been really enlightening to kind of see what's happening behind the scenes that ends up hitting our headlines. A couple of years later, often you'll have traced the origins of uh, major cultural shifts in different countries, or uh, not cultural, sorry, uh, legal shifts long beforehand. And so a lot of people who tend to say, well, this is a conspiracy, the reason they're saying that is simply because they don't have the information you have that you publicize, but where are these things originated?
1: Well, you know, um, they certainly are originated uh, at the United Nations. Uh, The sexual revolutionaries decamped to the United Nations Uh, 25, 30 years ago, um, and have flown under various banners since that time, um, including, you know, overpopulation, the population explosion, um, and, and have moved in the last couple of decades into the, the phrase, the, the phase of, of reproductive health. Um, and now they, they talk about comprehensive sexuality education. So, what happens at the United Nations level is that documents are negotiated uh, with language that is a little, you know, not overt, uh, fairly nuanced that is that phrases that are then interpreted to, to accept you know the whole panoply of the sexual revolution and that these documents are then taken even though they're they're not, most of the most of the way the UN to, talks to the world is through non-binding resolutions but the sexual left takes these non-binding resolutions twists the meaning of the words in these non-binding resolutions and then tells courts around the world that there is a new international norm on this, that or the other. So there's that way that it's imposed on other parts of the world through the documents of the United Nations. And then it's also through programming. And that is that the U.N. spends hundreds of millions and even billions of dollars overseas advancing their agenda. And, And so programmatically. Uh, they, they impose their agenda in spending money. Um, so in two ways, through inter- international law, soft and hard law, and then also through uh, through the programs where they spend billions of dollars to, to spread their ideology.
0: So let's, let's back up there. You said 25 to 30 years ago. So would you say that the United Nations was initially a good project or an idealistic project that was kind of hijacked and corrupted? How would you kind of frame the timeline?
1: Well, I mean, the, the UN was formed after the Second World War in, in order to provide a forum for governments to get together and talk uh, rather than fight. Um, that, that was the, that was the whole idea. Um, and it's never really worked all that well because I mean, from the very beginning, there were, there were, uh, countries with, with a particular ideological, uh, uh, agenda at that time, for instance, the Soviet union. Um, so the, the idea of the United nations was to provide a forum where governments can get together and talk and to take common action when called for, you know, we believe in subsidiarity and that means that from time to time, they're can be the necessity of global action but uh but yeah it, it 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 the un went off the rails almost immediately because the population controllers were 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 there uh in in the very beginning and and they started to advance the idea that the world was desperately overpopulated and that populations needed to be controlled so even from the very beginning left wing sexual agendas were present at the united nations and this picked up speed over the years. Uh, we have been involved in this since the Cairo conference in 1994 uh, and then the Beijing Women's Conference in 1995. So at those conferences uh, was when they began pushing the abortion agenda and everything flowed from those. So so for a good 25 years, they, they've been at it every working day, uh, promoting you know the, the the whole range of of the sexual revolution.
0: A couple of, of examples, when, when we talk about <clears throat> their working behind the scenes, you know, every working day they've been working to push the abortion agenda uh, for a long time, but that's really come out to the open, as you say, in the early 1990s. What are a couple of examples of, of successes that the sexual left has had that people know about because we see what the impact has been, but didn't know that it originated with these shadowy groups that many people probably can't name?
1: Well, I I just want to point out that these these really aren't shadowy groups. I mean, we're talking about the U.N., you know, it's 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 hardly shadowy. Um, uh, But examples, um, you know, almost anywhere you go in the world right now where they have legalized abortion through uh, uh, the judiciary, Mm -hmm. they cite um, documents of the United Nations to do it. Um, So it's happening all over Latin America right now. Just happened in Mexico Uh, where the Supreme Court uh, imposed abortion on demands through all the Mexican states. And in the decisions that you see, they will cite the documents of the United Nations. Now, the problem is the United Nations has never said there's a global right to abortion. Um, There's not a single international treaty that mentions abortion. Um, There's one treaty, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, that mentions reproductive health. But it doesn't define reproductive health as including abortion. So wherever you see these laws being changed through the imposition of courts, you can be certain that they are improperly citing U.N. documents. And, he, and and let me and let me give you a great example. You know, often people in America think that it, it can't touch them. Well, when our own Supreme Court overturned the juvenile death penalty, which was the death penalty imposed on those who committed heinous crimes under the age of majority, the Supreme Court overturned the juvenile death penalty now many years ago, you know, 15 years ago, something like that. They uh, cited several documents uh, of international law. One of them that they cited, the International Covenant, on the the, um, Convention on the Rights of the Child, we have as a country have never ratified. So they are citing an international document that we have never even recognized. They additionally cited uh, a part of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, one of the foundational human rights documents at the international level. But when we ratified that document, we specifically rejected the section of that document on the death penalty. But the Supreme Court cited that portion that we formally rejected when we when we ratified it. So so even in our own country, the Supreme Court has taken it upon itself to cite inter- phony international law. Now that ha- that has certainly s- slowed down because of the current court, but this was what was going on at the court a decade ago.
0: Now when I, when I reference shadowy groups I'm referring to a lot of these acronyms that I see crop up in in the emails that I get from Cfam the articles so not the UN writ large but these lobby groups that are working at the UN to impact yeah. the, the language and so those groups strike me as shadowy insofar as that they're having an impact on yeah. on judicial decisions around the world but none of us have ever heard of them and a lot of right. that, a lot of times based on my reading like their acronyms are sort of deliberately banal. So that you wouldn't, it's not like the, you know, the queer revolutionary front or something like that, although their ideology would be identical. What are some of the primary opponents of your work at the UN when you look at what you're attempting to do? What sort of lobbyists are, are trying to do the precise opposite of what CFAM is?
1: Well, um, you know, one, everybody will recognize the International Planned Parenthood Federation. Uh, so they're, they're quite well known. But, you know, there, there's a group called IPAS. Uh, IPAS. They're all all about abortion, all abortion all the time. They're a very powerful group at the United Nations lobbying on these on these efforts. They just opened up a headquarters in South Africa. There's a renewed effort to to go after Africa that's going on. We'll be reporting on that uh, tomorrow uh, about this renewed effort to go after Africa. So there's IPAS. There's the Center for Reproductive Rights. Um, There's something called Outright, which nobody's ever heard of. So so these groups have boatloads of money and a great deal of influence. And, and you know, the and, and one of the, uh, I, I would say, phony things, you could say ironic things about these groups is that they're really not non-governmental organizations. I mean, they're supposed to be non-governmental organizations, but they're almost exclusively funded by money from governments. So they're really the extension of governments. And when I say that, I mean our own government, you know, um, our own government gives billions of, well, I don't want to say billions, hundreds of millions of dollars to left-wing groups to promote these ideas overseas. And this even happened during the uh, during the Trump administration. I, I mean, you know, the, the deep state acts on its own as it wants to, when it wants to, no matter who's the president. So, yeah, we spend hundreds of millions of dollars on UN style family planning. Uh, you know, during the Trump administration, Rick Grinnell, who was the U.S. ambassador to uh, to Germany, and then uh, later the head of the National Security Agency, he was out there holding governments hostage in order to have them change their laws on uh, sodomy. Um, so even during the Trump administration, the, the, some sexual revolutionaries were advancing the sexual sexual revolutionary cause.
0: When you look at their current agenda, um, is their agenda now just essentially to force the legalization of abortion across Latin and South America and Africa? Or are they more focused on, say, legalizing same sex marriage in different countries or all of the above?
1: Oh, oh gosh, all of the above. Um, yeah. You know, uh, the, they had been talking, you know, one of the sneak terms. That they have used for years is gender and so now everything flies under the phrase of gender if gender is in a document it it means abortion it means uh it it means sexual orientation and gender identity it means comprehensive sexuality education it means all of these things so um so um, there was something that they developed years ago called mainstreaming the gender perspective and in the beginning they said oh that just means you know main you know mainstreaming the concerns of women And now, of course, gender has exploded to mean whatever they want it to. So uh, so, yeah, gender, they use a lot of code words, a lot of not so code words. For instance, I've mentioned a couple of times here, comprehensive sexuality education is a nefarious term, a nefarious idea that includes teaching children about masturbation, teaching children about homosexuality. And they want to impose comprehensive sexuality education on every man, woman and child on the face of the earth.
0: So when we look at uh, just like for, for the listeners who are kind of thinking, OK, United Nations, pass, International Planned Parenthood Federation, you've got all these different groups. And how does that result in, say, the law changed in Mexico? So just breaking down the process for a moment, say there's you know, a significant document that's being discussed at the UN, who brings up what, which treaty or which document to, to, to work on in the first place? And then how do they onboard the input that leads these terms that you're referring to to be included?
1: You know, um, the, um, we do not control the pen at the United Nations. So any document that is brought forward is inevitably brought forward by the sexual left, uh, generally countries in the European Union. But there'll be stalking horses for the European Union in, in Latin America, in Asia, Canada, you know, the United States. So, so the initial documents are always written by the left. Um, and then all we can do is respond. Um, so, yeah, they'll submit a document. It'll it'll be negotiated. We'll try to get as much bad stuff out. And then the doc, then the document is is. Um, published in the U.N. system and then uh, people, you know, lawyers and judges will say, oh, there's a new international norm. And so we have to follow what the new international norm is. You know, one of the tricks that they use is with these uh, treaties. There's a handful of of hard law treaties. Uh, The Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, Um, you know, all of these are bad. Not all of them, but many of them are bad. Uh, But one thing that they do is that they create what's known as a treaty monitoring body before which signatories to the treaty have to appear every few years and explain how they're implementing the treaty. These treaty monitoring bodies are purely advisory. However, several years ago, now many years ago, 25 years ago, these treaty monitoring bodies started rewriting these hard law treaties to include a right to abortion. So, for instance, uh, you will now hear people say there's an international right to abortion because of the interpretation of the Women's Committee, uh, the Women's Rights Committee connected to the International uh, the, the Convention. On on the elimination of all forms of discrimination against women so so they will go to the court in mexico and say you you have signed the CEDAW treaty the CEDAW treaty includes abortion you have a treaty obligation to change your laws on abortion and in many cases this is like pushing on an open door these courts are all too ready to do that even if it's not something that their people want and so th- that really is the process of how these things happen
0: So we know sort of what what, what the carrot is, right? Um, Like for a lot of these countries, uh, reproductive health, air quotes, all these kinds of things get get folded into aid packages, which you only get if you agree to stuff that your population might not want. But what would the stick be? So let's say they're pushing at at a door and they find resistance. How would they attempt to bully a, a, a socially conservative country into implementing the agenda if, say, their judiciary is decent and their politicians aren't on board?
1: Well, I mean, it doesn't really matter to them in the short term or really in the long term because they get what they want anyway through interactions, say, between the World Health Organization and their domestic health ministry. So the World Health Organization will go to the health ministry, which has been taken over by the left, even even in a conservative country, and they will begin to promote abortion in the country through the health ministry. Uh, I mean, they hope that one day, you know, the national legislature will make same-sex marriage legal or the courts will impose same-sex marriage or abortion on the country. But they can still subvert the country through aid packages. So, you know, they, they, they don't really need a stick because, you know, they hold everything. Now, my organization, we work strictly at the United Nations, also in Washington, D.C., but uh, we do not have the capacity or the power to go around and fight these people on the ground around the world. We are in touch with governments on the ground around the world, and we tell them what these documents mean. And And and, it, and that is one of the reasons there's no international right to abortion in, in a UN document, because of the lobbying efforts that we've done. But you know, the World Health Organization has billions of dollars. The UN Population Fund has billions of dollars. The uh, UN Women, uh, huge agency, has billions of dollars, and they spend these dollars on the round uh, on the ground around the world to impose abortion and same-sex marriage and LGBT and transgenderism, um, you know, on these countries through health ministries and and all ministries, really.
0: Now. <clears throat> One of the things I've always been impressed about um, CFAM C- C- is 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 based on what you just said, too, that on, on your budget, you managed to actually combat a lot of these things. And when you look at especially the last, say, so you started this off over 25 years ago now. What are some instances in which you like significantly exposed what the sexual left was doing and then were able to foil what they were up to?
1: Well, I mean, we've done it consistently from the very beginning. Um, you know, uh, abortion has not appeared in a hard law treaty. Um, uh, abortion it has not been named in international human right in U.N. documents, even though this kind of thing comes up all the time. Sexual orientation and gender identity has hardly gotten any traction at the United Nations. Uh, We've been able to block that consistently. We were able to block uh, the introduction of of sexual orientation and gender identity uh, in the first ever resolution before the Security Council a couple of years ago. So, you know, it's like most people don't know, don't know that all this is one of the great unknown fights in the world. And so and when we win one, people will really not know because they don't know the fight is going on. But, uh, I mean, we're, we're in the midst of negotiations in the General Assembly right now, and there are a number of U.N. General Assembly resolutions which are deeply troubling. For instance, you know, they, they, they want to crack down on what they call hate speech and what they and, and what they term as misinformation on reproductive health and rights. So we're, we're fighting those right now in the General Assembly. Um, you know, like I said, we, we negotiate every working day of the year throughout the year for years and years.
0: When you look at other international organizations, like one of the groups that seems to be doing very overtly um, what uh, the UN is doing behind the scenes that CFAM tracks is the European Union. When you hear um, countries wanting to censure Hungary uh, for taking action against the LGBT agenda and uh, when when Orban passed the one law on LGBT propaganda and the Dutch prime minister actually said that he wanted to bring Hungary to its knees on this issue, quote, when you work mainly in the UN, but of course you're aware of of what goes on at the international level um, across the board. When you look at organizations like um, the European Union, like the World Economic Forum, what do you think their overall um, um, approach is? And is it just inevitable that these groups get hijacked by progressives? Are they just better at this than we are? Or, Well, the, the European Union, uh, of
1: course, is a formal uh, international organization of 27, 28 countries in Europe. Um, and and they are among the most powerful blocks at the United Nations. Um, and I would point out, and this may come as a surprise to a lot of people on our issues at the U.N., Hungary is really bad. Hungary, Hungary may be really good on the ground in their own country, but they're willing to give away sovereignty. They're willing to give away LGBT. They They are in lockstep with the European Union on all these issues at the U.N., all of them. We have tried for years to get Hungary to object, even to write an explanation of position when something nasty comes up, but they won't. Um, I've even gone over there and I've lectured before, you know, large bodies uh, in Hungary. Uh, but yeah, they're not willing to break the EU consensus on the sexual revolution at the UN. The the driving force on these things at the UN uh are the on the government side. Uh, the United States the, and the European Union um, on the on the well, still on the government side are the, all the U.N. agencies. But but the U, but the European Union is very powerful. You know, if Hungary broke the EU consensus in a negotiation, it would force all of those countries to negotiate on their own. That would mean that Poland would probably go with us. Poland won't break the EU consensus at the UN. Uh, it, it's a very serious problem because the EU as a bloc is incredibly powerful. And they're probably our number one opponent uh, on these issues at the UN.
0: Is there any reason that uh, Poland and Hungary aren't? Is it because they're, they're dealing with so much internal division in the EU over different policies that they don't want to take that to the international level as well? Or why do you think they're behaving the way they are?
1: I think that the people that they have at the United Nations are not necessarily with us on the issues. I think that, I mean, the, Hungary is willing to break the EU consensus when it comes to things like uh, migration, immigration. So they're willing to break the EU consensus on issues that they think are important to them. But it's quite obvious that they don't think that these issues are important to them at the UN. I think that, that that's the beginning and end of it, is, is, that, is that these issues are not important to them at the UN.
0: And that's kind of disappointing, because do you think that is is a cynical political um, calculation or an indication that there's uh, that that some of their domestic positions are more populous than they are principal
1: you know i I, I don't know what the reason is. maybe it's a fight that they don't want to have uh, I mean it's very clearly a fight that they don't want to have um yeah I, I I don't know i mean it is a, it is a real frustration for us, especially given the fact that Hungary has spent years promoting itself among American conservatives and American social conservatives, that they are one of us. Um, I have participated in conferences in in Hungary. I've helped organize conferences in Hungary. We have organized conferences for the Hungarian government on Capitol Hill. Um, And so, you know, on the one hand, they, they have worked overtime to court American social conservatives and, and other kinds of conservatives. And on the other hand, at the United Nations, they don't do a darn thing. So it's a frustration. We, we only this year have we started speaking out uh, about what Hungary does and doesn't do at the UN.
0: Is there any reaction when you speak on these things? Because I have to admit, like it's, it's kind of surprising to contrast the sort of things that Catalan Novak is saying around the world yeah. and what you're yeah. telling me right now.
1: Yeah, I know. I know. Um, you know, we have a direct line into Orban's office and we fed this information to them. I mean, we did get a pretty good reaction in a in a behind the uh, closed door negotiation uh, about six months ago. They they said something good, uh, <laughs> which was good. I mean, it was hopeful. Uh, I had lunch with a small group of people with the Hungarian foreign minister a few months ago, and he said that he has an open door, gave me his email address. Uh, and wanted to know uh, about the development of negotiations at some point and what what they needed, what what we might need them to do. We'll see how that pans out. But but, yeah, there is there is a there is a disconnect between what what Novak travels to American Catholic universities and says and what they actually do at the U.N. Now, having said that, they do great things on the ground in their own country. I mean, I mean, hats off to them. We're fully supportive of everything that they're doing on the ground in Hungary. But at the UN, they're the EU. At the UN, they're Germany. At the UN, they're the UK, France,
0: Norway. That's not who you want to be. Yeah. <laughs> Norway, wow. You know, when I, when I
1: say this to when I say this to American conservatives, their jaws fly open. How could this possibly be? But it is.
0: So, a, a final kind of open-ended question here: What is something that you see happening all the time that you think uh, conservatives need to be aware of but aren't?
1: Americans need to understand that what happens at the United Nations really counts. It counts in our own country. It ha- it certainly counts around the world because this we need we need to ensure that the world does not succumb to the sexual revolution because we've seen what it ha- what it does to us here. Um, and, and Americans need to know that we are not immune from the wily ways and the nefarious plots of U.N. actors here in the United States. I mean there are movements all over this country in favor of the things that the that the UN wants to do. I mean we're so far down the road in 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 the sexual revolution that that it, you know it, it, it talk about pushing on an open door. But I mean consider this that when Roe v Wade was overturned in the Dobbs decision for the first time in history UN human rights experts intervened with an amicus brief. They were meddling in our own supreme court decision on the question of abortion and after the dobbs decision they've been going crazy uh around the world saying this is the threat to the global right to abortion and so on and so forth so so yeah we are not immune that's what people need to know is the united states is not immune from the problems that come with the sexual revolution at the united nations
0: Okay, uh, I take back what I said. That's not my last question because you just provoked another one. Uh, what do you think? What do you think the international impact of the overturn of Roe was?
1: You know, that's a really interesting question. We're all grappling with it. It 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 has um, it has. It has um, ignited a lot of passion and effort on the abortion side around the world. It is, a, it is a perhaps the number one talking point of the other side at this point globally that the United States threatens, you know, the international norm on abortion and everybody has to beware. And therefore, we have to pass new laws to protect the right to abortion. I think it probably the Dobbs decision had something to do with why Mexico imposed a, a right to abortion through their Supreme Court. So it's reverberated around the world, um, you know, in, in, and I'm quite sure in positive ways, but also in
0: Hmm. finally where can uh, where can people f- get your newsletter follow everything that's going on because i've i've found uh, the misses that i get from you every week to be tremendously helpful at helping to to get a better under a grounded um rooted um reality of what's actually going on on the international level and so if you could introduce everybody to where they can get that that'd be great we um w- we do a whole lot
1: of things we 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 try to uh, uh, we, we negotiate documents. We, we work very closely with a number of U.N. delegations and block bad things from coming into the United Nations into U.N. documents. The other half of what we do is we tell the wider world what really goes on there. And so we publish uh, uh, two 550-word stories every week called The Friday Facts. It's originally reported. We're just not rewriting press releases and things like that. My guys are at the U.N. every single day. If they're not at the U.N. every single day, they're covering U.N. bodies every single day. And so what you'll find in the Friday facts is things that people have no idea are going on at the United Nations. We don't write them as editorials either. We write them as straight news. A lot of times we'll get responses People shocked that we're agreeing with what's going on at the UN, and that's that's kind of a compliment because all we're doing is reporting uh, without comment. So yeah, two hundred two 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 five hundred and fifty word uh, uh, stories every week in something called the Friday Facts. People can subscribe at uh, c-f-a-m dot o-r-g c-f-a-m dot o-r-g, and we have hundreds of pages of really smart research on all of these issues. For instance. Nobody's ever heard of the term unmet need. It's one of the primary pushes for UN-style contraception all over the world. We are experts on unmet need and what it means and whether it's real and a whole bunch of other really arcane things that happen at the
0: UN. Austin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us.
1: It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for such a smart interview. I appreciate it.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Austin Roos of CFAM. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. If you want to check out other podcasts, head over to lifesitenews.com. Go to the podcast tab. There you can subscribe to our show, listen to past shows, get future ones delivered. Thank you so much for your time once again. Have a great weekend.